Well, welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and the Christian life. My name is Joe Anity. I serve as pastor at Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church in Hemet, California. And I'm joined today by Dr. Jim Renahan, who serves as pastor at Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Vista, California, and is also the president of the Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies Seminary, which, uh, beginning in the fall of 2018, will be holding classes in Mansfield, Texas. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Very happy to be with you, Joe. Thanks for asking. Dr. Renahan has agreed uh, to allow me to interview him on the subject of church polity or, or church government, and uh, specifically on that form of church government that we call congregationalism. Uh, the topic is is not one that I've chosen at random, but is one that our church is, is currently working through, is currently considering it. And so I do trust that this particular episode will be of great benefit uh, to the members of Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this, Jim. I, I think this is such an important subject, and I, I, I'm just pleased that our members will have access to, to this teaching. But I was wondering if, uh, before we get to the subject of congregationalism, you would give us a brief update on the progress of, of the seminary. Well, thank you for asking. Um, things are really moving along very well. Uh, we're very encouraged with what's happening. Um, just as an example, about two weeks ago, we opened up uh, the application process, and as of this morning, January 31st, we have 17 ap- active applications uh, to come in and be students, which is really an amazing number for the uh, the short period of time that, that uh, things have been open. So uh, we're, we're looking forward to beginning uh, summer Greek at the end of July, and then the first semester should start on August 30th. Um, Just loads of things to think of and work on. I've been doing that all morning, Um, but uh, really, really thankful to God, and and I think things are moving ahead very nicely. That's fantastic. Uh, 17 applicants is really encouraging, and I know you're very busy, uh, Jim, and so I... (laughs) I always appreciate that you take the time to talk with me, but especially now, uh, given the uh, the busyness of the season. But uh, this this subject, uh, church government, church polity, and particularly uh, congregationalism, is a very important subject. I think Christians should care deeply about uh, how the church is is governed. I find that it's not a theological topic that a lot of Christians are terribly interested in. You know, I mean, if you want to fill a room. You probably offer a class on eschatology, maybe, or uh, maybe on the doctrine <laughs> of salvation. People tend to come out for that sort of thing. But when you promote, uh, you know, a class on on church government, on ecclesiology, uh, I find that people don't tend to be quite as interested. But why is it important for us to talk about church government? Shouldn't we be excited about this subject? Yeah, well, the old writers would answer this by asking a question. Isn't Christ a king? And if Christ is a king, what um, commands has he given to order his kingdom? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, for, for them, the, the whole subject of church government is an application of the kingship of Christ. Uh, how, how does he will for us to uh, live in this world? And if that's the case, it becomes very important because our lives are to be an offering that's given over to our king. Uh, we're to love him and serve him with all of our hearts. And so we need to know what his will is for us to do uh, as a church. Amen. Uh, 
Eventually, we're going to talk about congregationalism, and you'll give a positive presentation of that form of church government. But I think it would be helpful if you would give a brief overview of some of the other forms of church government that exist besides uh, congregationalism. Yeah. um, Generally speaking, there are three views. There's the uh, the old um, Episcopalian view, or um, even it's the view that is held by Rome. And in some cases, uh, other Protestant churches, for example, the Church of England, where the, the church is governed by bishops and the bishops have responsibility over certain usually geographic areas. And uh, the churches underneath or in those areas are subject to the bishops. Um, the second major um, uh, type of church government is uh, Presbyterianism. It takes on a couple of different forms, but it it is um, – well, let me just say the, the Episcopalian system is a system of descending church power where uh, church power begins at the top. The, the person on earth who is the head of the church in the Roman church, that's the pope. In the Church of England, it's the Archbishop of Canterbury, and then it flows down from there. Presbyterianism, the second, is an ascending form of church government, which um, uh, sees that each local church has its own group of elders, and those elders participate in a presbytery, which is the next step up. It's a group of elders from a variety of congregations, usually within a geographic area. And then those elders are part of, in, in a full system, they're part of a synod, which um, might be, let's say, all of the churches west of the Mississippi or east of the Mississippi would come together as a synod. And then finally, there's the whole church that meets together. Um, Usually they call this the General Assembly, where the elders uh, of of all of the churches represent each church. And it's it's an ascending in that it begins with the local church and it works its way up. And it's a a representative form of church government, where the... uh, each of the elders on those various steps are considered to be representatives of the lower body. So the, the, the elders in the session, which is the local church body, represent the, the, the church. When they go to the presbytery level, they represent their church there. When they go to the synod, they represent their presbytery and their church. And in the general assembly, they would represent all of those uh, levels of church government. And then the the third system is is independency or congregationalism, and they need to be those two terms need to be used synonymously. Some people like to make a distinction between them. It, it just doesn't hold up in the literature. Uh, the independents and the congregationalists use the words freely to describe themselves, and it's it's sort of a a coordinating view of church government in which each church has the right and responsibility to govern itself, believing that Christ has given to each uh, church everything that it needs for self-government, and it does not need to be subordinate to either a hierarchy of bishops or a, uh, um, a, uh, a collection of churches in a Presbyterian form. Sure. Um, I, I did not grow up in mm-hmm. a congregational church. I, I Well, the way you defined it, I suppose I did. It was an independent church. Uh, <laughs> Um, uh, one that okay. was very mm-hmm. much independent. Uh, so if we use those terms synonymously, then I guess that I did grow up in a congregational church. Um, but within that church, it was well, – I, I, Go ahead. I, I, I mean the, that they're equivalent historically. Okay, I understand. Uh, probably in the 20th century, you, you can make a distinction between the two. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Okay, that 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 makes sense to me. Um, in in the church that I grew up in, it was independent and it was uh, ruled only by the elders. Uh, the the stereotype that I remember hearing was that in congregational churches, the members of the churches voted were to vote on everything, uh, even the color of the carpet. And, and I do know that you believe that within a congregational system, uh, the members of the church uh, should should vote on matters. But does that stereotype hold hold true uh, in, in your experience? Well, sadly, it does in some places. Um, it's sort of congregationalism gone to seed and, um, uh, weak pastors and, uh, powerful, uh, individuals who like to challenge pastors, um, have sort of misdirected the, the doctrine in scripture and in the confession into a free for all. Right. So it does happen, uh, but it's not the form of government that you're, uh, that, that you're, uh, uh, obviously promoting here. Um, so within a local congregation, uh, that the church is independent, there is no authority over uh, the local church besides Christ himself. Uh, but within the local church, you have pastors and elders, and you also have members, and each have particular responsibilities, um, uh, roles to play mm-hmm. uh, within the congregation. Uh, so Indeed, pastors and elders do have authority within the congregation, and and you would even use the terminology that they are to rule, wouldn't you? Uh, and if so, what mm-hmm. what do Absolutely. you mean by that? Yes. What do you mean by that then? Yeah, you know the 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 thing that I have found most helpful in thinking through um, the rule of elders and the obedience that the people of God owe to them is John Owen's exposition of Hebrews 13, um, which is, I'm sure, available online. Um, it's really accessible, and it's it's an outstanding exposition in that Owen argues persuasively, um, based upon his careful study of the words and the flow of thought, that the obedience that uh, is spoken of there in Hebrews 13, 7, 17, and 24 is uh, is an obedience that's based upon persuasion. And the persuasion comes from the word of God. So that uh, when elders um, come to people, they bring with them the scriptures and they show them from the scriptures what their duty is and the people are to obey uh, what their elders teach them from the word of God. Hmm. Um, and so uh, he, he limits the, the uh, obedience that we offer up to our elders to that which comes from Scripture, which which really means that the elders then are the representatives of Christ in the church, and their task is to see that His will is implemented in the lives of God's people. Sure, I think that's very helpful. Um, I, th- I think some who, when they think about church polity, uh, they're, they're very tempted to uh, do uh, that which seems like it will run. Uh, most smoothly, you know, uh, they, they say, well, okay, here we have this group of people, we have this organization, and what will work best, uh, what will enable us to make decisions and to cut through issues like a hot knife through butter, uh, you know, and, and so they're they're very mm-hmm. pragmatic in, in their um, decision-making in terms of uh, deciding upon a particular form of church government. And indeed, I, I admit it, it is tempting to, to think of a church um, uh, that is ruled by a group of elders that doesn't have to, you know, hear from the congregation, it seems as if 
that would be very efficient, you know, just to to move forward and to make decisions. Mm-hmm. What would you say though to someone who was being driven by that um, pragmatic uh, way of thinking? Yeah, well, I I would say that um, pragmatism is not the rule of our lives as Christians. It's Scripture. And um, when Christ has spoken, our responsibility is to obey what the scripture says, not to come up with alternatives. You know, in 30 plus years of pastoral ministry, uh, one of the things I've learned in helping people along through whatever circumstance they face in life is that it's always right to obey the scriptures, even if it seems counterintuitive to do so. Okay, and and this is a case where it may seem to people to be counterintuitive. Uh, you know, the the uh, I, I remember a couple of years ago, I had a student in my office who was telling me about a church where um, you have a group of very successful businessmen who are the elders of the church, and they have decided that their church will be governed, it will be ruled according to the principles of their corporations. And uh, that's a very pragmatic approach, but it's and, and it apparently works for them because it's a large church. But is it faithful to Scripture? And if Christ were to ask the question, um, "Who has required this at your hand?" What would the response be? Uh, there would be no response appropriately um, if He were to ask us that question. What? Who has required this at your hand? And we can say, "You have, Lord, because this is what you've told us in Scripture that we ought to do." Um, then we can depend upon him. You know, the, the, I think that pragmatism views church life um, horizontally. How, how can we get things done and what can be best for us here? Where really as Christians in everything that we do, we have to think vertically. What does the Lord want? And what does the Lord promise that he will use, that he will bless uh, it's his word. It's it's not my innovation. It's not my great ideas. It's not the latest um, uh, executive uh, or, or book on executive practices that will help me to uh, run a large organization. It may work in a in a business, but that's not what Christ intends for us. And the church is not to be run uh, by executives as a business. It's to be run by pastors and with the participation of the people under the lordship of Christ. So we're to go to the scriptures to to decide how the church is to be governed. And I think most would agree the scriptures are clear that there are to be pastors and elders along with deacons uh, mm-hmm. in the local church, and they have particular mm-hmm. responsibilities. So at least in the circles that I come from, uh, that point doesn't need to be proven. I think people can see it clearly that elders and, and pastors and deacons have a certain type of authority within the church. Uh, what might be new to some folks who I rub uh, shoulders with is the idea that uh, the members of the congregation also have a certain kind of authority. They have a certain kind of um, uh, responsibility within the local church. And and so mm-hmm. what do the scriptures have to say about that? What sort, do, what sort of power uh, does the, do the scriptures give to the members of the congregation. Yeah, well, if, you know, a careful study of scripture will point us to several very important examples of the participation of God's people in um, New Testament churches. Uh, For example, when the Lord Jesus speaks in Matthew 18 about uh, the, the practice of church discipline, and it's not the only word in the New Testament about church discipline, but, but it's a very important word. Um, 
he tells us that if it's necessary to go beyond uh, the first personal conversation, and then if that doesn't go well, we take one or two with us and we have another conversation, then ultimately if the sin still is not repented, then it is to be brought to the church. And he says if this man or woman doesn't hear the church, then he is to be uh, treated as a tax collector and a sinner. And church there has to be given its full sense. There's nowhere in the Bible that uh, church can be reduced to um, a smaller core of individuals within the congregation, meaning the group of elders, for example. The elders are not the church. The church is the church. And Jesus tells uh, in in this very sad situation, really, if it has to come to this, but but the Lord Jesus says that it is to be told to the church and that the church is to have a voice um, because he is to hear what the church says. And if he doesn't hear what the church says, then the punishment comes upon him. So there, very clearly, Jesus is speaking to us about church discipline. Um, you have the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul uses very specific language um, about uh, when you're gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus, um, that's that's churchly language. And he says that you are to obey me and you are to cast this uh, man out, this man who is grossly immoral in his actions. You do it. You you take the responsibility and put him out of your membership. And in 2 Corinthians 2, there's a really interesting passage where it, it may or may not be the same man. It, it really doesn't matter. But Paul tells the Corinthians that they are to uh, receive him back in, whoever this person is in 2 Corinthians 2, um, because his repentance is real. And he actually, Paul actually uses the language. He, he speaks about the, the punishment that is imposed by the majority. So we can, we can, we know that there was a majority of those who were in favor of discipline in this case, whatever it was. But it also seems that there was a minority who disagreed. And, uh, so that's, that's not the elders. That's the congregation and they are to do those things. Likewise, in the choice of officers, um, you know, whenever we build a doctrine or a practice, we don't focus on one text, but we look at all of the texts and then correlate them and draw forth from them doctrine and practice. And when you look at the choice of an apostle to replace uh, Judas in Acts chapter 1, and when you look at the responsibility of choosing seven men to oversee the uh, distribution of food to the, the uh, Hellenist widows, in both cases, the congregation is given qualifications and then told to choose from among those who meet the qualifications, men who can be put into these positions. And the old writers, and I'm, I'm sure that they're right, argue that those two examples are really definitive for the rest of the places in Scripture that talk about the appointment of elders or deacons. That that an abbreviated statement in Acts 14 or in Titus chapter 1 needs to be read in light of the fuller practice that is described in more detail in Acts 1 or, or in Acts chapter 6. So there the congregation is involved in the choice of officers. Um, you also have in... in um, Acts chapter 9, after Saul's conversion, he comes back to the city of Jerusalem, and uh, Luke says that he sought to join the church, but the members would not have him. 
And so he was brought to the apostles, and the apostles then had to instruct the members that they ought to receive Paul. And uh, that that certainly seems to be um, uh, an indication that the people have a right to um, bring into their congregation those who make a genuine profession of Christ. Of course, their fear fear was that uh, Paul was not a genuine believer at this point, and it took the apostles to convince them that he was. But still, the church had the right to to keep him out of membership. Uh, until the apostles uh, vouched for his um, his gen- the genuineness of his conversion, mm-hmm. and then then another example is in Acts chapter fifteen, uh, but maybe we'll talk about that one a little bit later on. So th- those are just three categories um, in church discipline, in the choice of officers, in the admission of members, and the argument I think uh, well the, the the argument that the old writers make, and it's a really good one, is that you, you go from the greater to the lesser. These, these are the most important matters, church discipline, and ultimately a pronouncement upon someone's soul that they're uh, to be like a tax collector and a sinner, or the choice of those who have the responsibility of bringing the word of God to us. Um, if you argue from the greater to the lesser, then it's very clear that the congregation has a very important role in its own self-government, yeah, I agree. So there are these three things at least, church discipline, the reception of new members, the appointment and removal of officers. Um, clearly, mm-hmm. the congregation is to be involved in, in these uh, three things and perhaps even more than that. Um, uh, so how would you describe then uh, the the power of the elder and the deacon within the local church then? Um, what what do they have the power to do Um apart from the direct involvement of the congregation? Yeah, well, I, I would say that they, they need to be set free to do their jobs. For example, with deacons, uh, the deacons are appointed to, um, in Acts chapter 6, let, let's assume that they're deacons. I, I think that they are, but you know, I, I realize that there are some brothers who disagree, but let, let's just assume for the sake of discussion that those are deacons. They're, they're chosen, they're appointed to their office, they're ordained, and then they're set free to do their job. They're not given further instructions how to distribute the food. They're just given the, the instructions, do this, and they go and do it. I think deacons need to be set free to do their job, whatever that job is, as defined by the scriptures and by the church. Now, from my perspective, deacons have three jobs primarily. The first and most important, though oftentimes it's forgotten or it's put in the background, is benevolence. And uh, our deacons ought to be the leaders in the congregation in terms of benevolence, seeing physical needs and finding ways to meet those physical needs. And oftentimes when they do those things, they need to do them um, privately rather than publicly, uh, especially to keep, uh, to protect the confidentiality of people who may be in need. Um, We don't want to expose their needs to everyone. We trust our deacons to be, uh, if we receive, uh, let's say we receive a monthly offering, which is what our congregation does, we put that money in the hands of the deacons and then trust the deacons to distribute it as they see fit. Um, and they, at the end of the year, they'll give us a general um, 
accounting, we received this much money, this is the, the, the money we distributed, but we don't ask them to tell us to whom it was distributed. Um, second thing that, uh, that deacons, the other two things probably have become the, the real focus of the diaconate in our lives, and that's budgets and buildings. And that is a, there is a place, a very important place for deacons to be involved in those things because they are the, 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 the righteous, mundane affairs of the church. Someone needs to take care of them. And if pastors were to take care of them, uh, we would be distracted from our primary work, which is preaching the word and praying. And uh, so I think that deacons um, have the right to fulfill their responsibilities. They uh, ought to present a budget to the church. Now, I, I would argue the church needs to approve it because it's the money that's given by the church. And But the, then once the, the budget is approved, the deacons have the right to administer it, to, to um, pay salaries, to pay the um, gas and electric uh, insurance, to repair the roof, um, to do any of those things that they need to do. I do think that, that it might be prudent for a church to set a limit and say, just, just arbitrarily, and it wouldn't have to be this, it's just a suggestion. Let's say the church said anything under $1,000 or $2,000, the deacons are free to go ahead and do that. But if, if something comes up that requires 10000 you need to bring it to the church so that we can talk about it here. You know, so that's that's not the color of paint or the carpets or um, whether or not um, we'll have a new coffee pot for the church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. It's setting the deacons free to do all of those things, but also recognizing that, um, uh, you, you know, there is a place because the people of God are giving their money. There is a place for them to be able to be satisfied that whatever is being done with the budget and the building is according to their will. So I, that, that's an arbitrary restriction. And I would say that that comes under the, the section of our confession, chapter one, paragraph six, which says that there are certain things um, that relate to the government of the church that are to be done according to Christian prudence and the light of nature. So prudently, we look at this and say, you know what? The deacons can't spend $10,000 without consultation. But, they could spend a thousand dollars, or or if if uh, if the air conditioning unit suddenly gives out on a hot California August uh, week, uh, and it needs to be repaired, go for it, guys. Don't wait. Yeah. Okay. And the elders too then need to be free to do their work according to the scriptures. Um, uh, yeah. Also. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. yes. Now, I know that congregational churches, uh, they, they do vote, and to be quite honest, that is something new to us here at Emmaus. Um, uh, we've uh, uh, presented mm-hmm. a, a new constitution to our church to consider, and it involves voting. Uh, I, I praise the Lord. He was gracious to us to where all decisions that we've made in the past, all major decisions such as the things described above, we the elders have been careful to hear the voice of the congregation and to give time for input and, and to take – if you will, a kind of informal vote, but uh, we're seeing the wisdom in, in taking actually a formal vote on matters of church discipline, the reception of new members, the appointment and removal of officers. Um, and and so uh, we've presented that idea to the congregation, but voting is something, honestly, that is, uh, that is new to us. Uh, can you make a case from the scriptures in favor of congregational voting, uh, the actual casting of a vote? 
or is that also just um, a matter of, of uh, prudence and, and wisdom? Uh, what would you say to that, Dr. Renahan? Yes, I, I, I actually think that there is a very strong case from the scriptures. Um, and what, what really helped me on this was one day I spent in the library at the seminary here chasing down a series of references from a um, very important reference work that uh, you and I may, may use regularly, but our people uh, are not going to spend $100 to buy. That's Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich's uh, Greek, uh, an Eng- uh, Greek lexicon of the New Testament and other early sources. And I was looking at it one day and uh, found some really infor- interesting information. I, I, I can't delve into all of the technicalities of this, okay? But in Acts chapter 15, verse 22, verse 25, and verse 28, there is a little phrase that is easy to read over in English um, because it, it, it seems to be just a passing phrase that we would use as an introduction to our, our discussion. And yet the, the experts in Greek literature have identified this as an idiomatic phrase. That is a phrase that to the native Greek speaker of the first century would have a very specific meaning. And uh, uh, just looking at um, a couple of these texts in Acts 15, 22, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch. Verse 25, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And then verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than etc. And this this uh, phrase that's translated, it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church, or it seemed good to us, is actually a term that was a technical term that was used by the Greeks to speak of voting in an assembly. And um, some of the the reference literature argues that that's exactly how it ought to be translated. Um, in, In the lexicon that I mentioned before, it calls it an administrative technical term. Another uh, very important dictionary of the Greek language says it means to decide, often in secular Greek. And another, it seems good, it is a technical term in Greek of all periods for voting or passing a measure in the assembly. Mm. Now, on that day, when I went searching for this, I read all of the articles that the seminary library had on this. And it was I felt like a detective tracing down a mystery. I actually was fun. I, I realized somebody sitting there listening to this saying, this guy's a little odd to be uh, you know, reading academic articles and having fun in it. Well, okay, but that's my job. And it really was, it really was fun to ultimately come to this conclusion. And it was a conclusion based upon very strong and clear evidence um, that, that, as I said, this, this is an idiom uh, that is – it's easy for us to overlook, but it's an idiom that would have been understood by first century Greek speakers uh, in their broader culture. And they would read what Luke tells us in Acts 15 and, the, and they would say, oh, yeah, they brought it to a vote. Hmm. That's what they did in this meeting. And it was the apostles and the elders in the whole church. They brought it to a vote. And then the result of the vote became that letter that was sent out. 
it, it, it begins to be astounding when you think about it, because in some ways they're defining the nature of the gospel as it relates to the Gentiles. Yeah. This is no small matter. You know, this, this is the fourth of these big matters that you find. And they actually brought it to a vote. And the congregation in Jerusalem with the apostles and the elders um, made this ruling. Now, you know, think about what's going on in Acts 15. Why didn't the apostles just uh, go into the back room, sit down and talk among it, about it among themselves and come out and make a ruling? They didn't. Why didn't the apostles and the elders together go into a room? and uh, have a discussion and come out with a ruling. Well, they didn't. What they did was had an open discussion of it, certainly led by Peter and Paul and others, uh, by the leaders of the church, James. Um, but when when the, it came time for a decision, it was a vote of the congregation uh, that finally, um, in, in some ways, recognized the will of the Lord to set us Gentiles free from the restrictions of the Jewish law. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I don't know if I'd describe it as fun. Maybe I would, uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I find it fascinating. Um, I do yeah. en- I do enjoy stuff like that too. I don't know if I'm quite wired as you are, uh, Dr. Renahan, to really enjoy it. But, um, <laughs> you know, just speaking from my experience, when I first began to really consider congregationalism and particularly the issue of asking for a formal vote from the congregation, my initial gut response to it, my knee-jerk reaction was to say, well, why, you know, why do we need to be so formal? Uh, why can't we be more relational with the church? Which is what we've done over the years. And I do, again, praise the Lord that mm-hmm. we haven't made any major decision. And we've made a lot of major decisions, but we haven't made any without seriously hearing from the congregation. I don't think we've made any major decision without a near unanimous approval from the congregation but we we um but we heard their voice not in this formal way but just through dialogue and at first that that, that seemed mm-hmm. more natural to me uh, but then after thinking about it more i'm thinking well how much more powerful would it have been to conclude all of that natural interaction you know that that conversation with a formal vote uh, so mm-hmm. that the congregation is speaking in in a very clear and decisive and authoritative way exactly on these important matters exactly uh, you know it's strange exactly. the, the the emotions and, that come along with some of our traditions you know we hold on to them but uh yeah I, yeah, yeah. Uh, well go ahead you, you know what else i would argue um is that our our doctrine of the church states that um it is believers Uh, or professing believers, so far as we are able to tell, who are members of the church, okay? That's our doctrine. We we don't include unbelievers, nor do we include infants. It's those who have made a a credible profession of faith uh, who are baptized who come into church membership. Now, what does that say about those people? It says that they've made a credible profession of faith, that the assumption is that the Holy Spirit indwells them, and we ought to assume that they're growing in Christ, even if they're they're babes, um, that they're growing in Christ, unless there's some other obstacle, something that comes out of their lives that demonstrates that they're following a pattern of sin. And that does happen in believers. But if if we if we put the best construction on our people and how we view our people, then that informs our congregationalism. It, it says, you know what, these people are being indwelt by the Spirit. They love the Lord Jesus. They want to obey him. 
they can be trusted uh, to listen to what the scripture says and make an informed decision that will be for the good of their souls and for the glory of Christ. I, I think our, our ecclesiology demands um, uh, this form of church government because it gives uh, a lot of respect and appreciation to what Christ does by his spirit in the lives of God's people. Yeah, really is a beautiful thing when you step back and look at it. Uh, from that perspective. And, mm-hmm. uh, the officers of the church have a vote too. Um, and this question just came to my mind, uh, Dr. Renahan, but, um, well, I don't know if I could state it even in question form. I'll, I'll just put it as a, a statement. Um, pastors and elders, they, they do have weight within the congregation, uh, but they should, mm-hmm. they, they should carry that, that weight carefully. And, and, uh, they're to persuade then if there's some decision that a congregation needs to yes. needs to make it's not as if the elders get five votes where everyone else gets one but instead they're to use their position of authority within the church to persuade um, the congregation to go in a yes. particular direction yeah okay yes exactly uh, well once you begin uh, once you decide to vote all sorts of questions come to mind and I, i'd like to ask those um what percentage should be required to make a decision valid? Do you think the scriptures speak to that issue at all? And, and I know there are a variety of opinions on, on this matter, and, and, but you could decide how you want to answer it. Uh, do you think the scriptures speak to the issue of um, what percentage should be required to make a decision valid? Um, probably, yes. Uh, and I go back to Second Corinthians 2.6. Um, which, well, five and six, Paul says, if anyone has caused grief, he's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. And uh, majority there, let, let me read you a, a comment by Philip Hughes. The punishment imposed on the offending Corinthian had been consequent on a resolution passed by a majority of the church members. There have been some dissentient voices, and he says, notice the qualification in part in the previous verse, but as a body, the church had passed judgment in obedience to their apostles' instructions. Now, a majority is um, one half plus one, 51%. And so if we were to be uh, very strict about uh, examples in scripture, I would say we should be content with a majority, although our desire, of course, ought always to be to seek for unanimity. And I, and I, I am personally, I'm very comfortable with the idea of majority. Now, some might argue, and I would give them the freedom to do so, that the light of nature and Christian prudence perhaps um, would require a, a higher percentage in some cases that maybe or maybe not. But certainly, um, if we if we look into the scriptures, um, what we have here is fifty plus one, fifty percent plus one. Hmm. And in your opinion, how should the congregation cast their vote? Should it be done in a certain way by ballot, by voice, by raise of hand? Um, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I I think that um, that's where the light of nature and Christian prudence really helps us. Um, you know, on most matters that a church would vote on, uh, a voice vote is quite sufficient. But there could be times when 
a matter is especially um, difficult or when there are differences of opinion in the congregation. And in order to preserve the unity of the church, it might be more prudent to have a, um, a written ballot. Um, oftentimes that's the case with, for example, putting officers forward. I, I think in our church, we always do it by a written ballot. Um, not that we anticipate any, any dissension at all, but just for the sake of propriety so that, uh, you could, you can vote your conscience, um, without being exposed to others. You, you might be the one lone voice who doesn't agree and uh, a written ballot allows you that uh, that kind of freedom. So I, I don't think that there is a, uh, a one way to do this. It could be by a ballot. It could be by voice, could be by the raising of hand. Uh, I think the key point is that the congregation uh, uses one of these methods um, by which they're able to express their will. And this question also came to mind. I mean, we're talking about uh, voting um, uh, amongst the congregation as a whole, uh, but in your opinion, how how should the elders make decisions amongst themselves? Because certainly the elders, as they rule, are going to have to make uh, decisions amongst themselves. Um, how should that be handled? Uh, should uh, a simple majority be required there, or should a unanimous decision be made by by the elders? Yeah, that's that's um, that's a good question, and I don't have a, a clear answer. I I, I would say. With humility, with listening ears to each other, with care and caution, and if they're able to do so, which in most cases would be true, uh, slowly, um, I think that the, the eldership has to come to terms within itself as to how it will function. Mm-hmm. And... Um, what kind of what kind of um, voice it will present to the congregation when it brings um, a matter before them, and every every group is going to be different in the way that they work that out. Um, so I, I'm I'm not sure that I can tell you what my opinion is even on does there have to be a majority. I've heard stories of churches where um, an eldership has wanted to go in one direction and one man has held out and the decision was let's let's wait another month and think through this more carefully and when they came back the next month uh, virtually everybody had changed over and agreed with the one man who held out and i think that that was marvelous um that showed a deference and appreciation and a willingness to um uh, to listen to others and to reevaluate one's position, so I, I, you know, I'm I'm sort of spinning this out right now, but th- that that would be my answer. Each eldership has to come up within itself as to um, how its its own culture will be developed and expressed. Hmm. I think that's well said, and uh, I think all of this is very helpful, uh, Doctor Renahan, and I do appreciate it very much. I was wondering if you have any uh, book recommendations that you can give to us on the subject of of church polity, uh, that, that would be helpful for people who want to study more. Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, you know, not to be self-promoting, but, um, my book edification and beauty deals with church polity as it relates to the confession of faith. 
Um, I've never received a cent in profit from the sales of that book. So if anybody goes out and buys it, um, I'm not going to see any benefit from it. But uh, it was my attempt. It was my, my doctoral dissertation. It was my attempt to answer the question, how did the men who first wrote our Confession of Faith put their doctrine of the church into practice? And so uh, I think that that would be helpful. Um, another book that is, in my mind, brilliant and really important is an old book from New England um, by John Cotton, the Puritan minister from Boston, and it's called The Keys of the Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, it can be found online uh, for free, um, but it's the book that uh, convinced John, Co- uh, John Owen himself uh, that he was not a Presbyterian, but that he was a Congregationalist. It's uh, it's not very difficult to read. It's not extremely long. It might only be 80 or 100 pages. But I think he has some brilliant exegesis when he comes to Colossians 2 and Galatians chapter 5 and makes a, a very strong case for um, the Congregational way. Then a third book uh, that's also available for free online is a book that uh, uh, it's a compilation of historic Baptist documents that was done by Mark Dever 20 or 25 years ago. It's called Polity, P-O-L-I-T-Y. It's available, or each of the chapters is available on the founders.org website. And um, they don't, not all of the chapters say the same thing or necessarily agree with each other. But um, I think that there's a lot of um, gold uh, that can be found in, in those various chapters in, in uh, Dr. Dever's book. So those three immediately come to mind, and, and um, I think that they may be helpful for God's people. Well, thank you uh, for those recommendations, and um, I've really enjoyed this. Um, I've enjoyed this interview. Um, I've also enjoyed really looking carefully at this subject um, over the past few months, especially, um, I know that it's not the most popular subject to talk about or consider, but it, it, it is so important. And I've made this comment to our congregation over the years, actually, uh, that, yeah, um, you know, we might enjoy talking about our doctrine of salvation, but man, the doctrine of the church has such an impact upon us on a day-to-day basis. Uh, it mm-hmm. has to do with how we, <clears throat> how we live life together here this side of eternity. Uh, in the kingdom of God. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's such an important thing to consider. So I do hope that the listener has benefited from from this teaching here, and I hope they go to these books that you've recommended. Um, I pray that what we've done here would help in some way to strengthen uh, Christ's church here on planet Earth. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that, that really is everything that we're working towards now is is the establishment of the kingdom mm-hmm. of God and, and his church. Uh, so we pray blessings upon uh, that work. Um, to the listener, I would just say, please mm-hmm. check back with us again. Um, I do hope to put more episodes out in the future, um, hopefully on a regular basis, and uh, I hope you're finding them beneficial. Until then, abide in Christ. Mm-hmm.